We'll be picking up right where we left off last week in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. Let me pray and ask for the Spirit's help, and we'll get right to work. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and illuminate these texts to us. We ask that we would be informed in our knowledge of Scripture, transformed by the renewing of our minds, conformed to the image of Christ, and recommissioned on the Great Commission. Lord, help me, frail as I am, to serve us well in this time. In Jesus' good name, amen. Well, if you were with us last week, you may recall that Pastor David led us in a study of the first six verses in this new chapter. And there, Peter was giving some directives based on how not to live. Hey, you don't need to be about these kinds of things. You do need to be about this kind of life. And he continues that positive directive here in verse 7. There'll be three points for us today. I want to actually go ahead and give us the first one before we even look at verse 7. And some would argue that this is somewhat of a north star that guides the rest of the passage. So here's the first point. Christians should be motivated by the imminent return of Christ. Christians should be motivated by the imminent return of Christ. Let's look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, grammatically, take a look at what he's doing here. He says, Something is true, the end of all things is at hand, and because that is true, here's what you need to do in response. And then he gives a command, and then also even a basis, a reason for that command. So, let's unpack it. The end of all things. Now, what he's talking about here is the return of Christ. And what he's getting at here is he's saying that all the major events of God's story of redemptive history, except one, have been accomplished. There was the creation, there was the fall, there was redemption and Jesus coming, and then there's going to be restoration, or some call that consummation, where Christ returns and eventually sets all things right. One way to think about that is there's nothing else pending on God's calendar to keep Jesus from returning. If you want a, a, an illustration of this, if you think about it as a drama, as a play that God is giving us in redemptive history, all of the major events have occurred, have occurred and now we're waiting on Jesus to return. And throughout church history, people have responded to that in different ways. There's kind of one camp that is almost fixated upon it, uh, and, and it seems like everything, every discussion is about Jesus is coming at any moment, and it, it takes a lot of different shapes, and it, there can be almost an overemphasis of the return of Christ. But then at the other end of the spectrum, there can be an underemphasis of the return of Christ. And that is often the case for churches that, that kind of exist in our stream, that are more doctrinal and, and trying to teach uh, in a certain direction, and so on and so forth. And so we need to be very mindful to not fall into that trap. And passages like this, where Peter puts this doctrine of the return of Christ uh, so clearly before us, and we see him use it as a motivator for us, we need to be very mindful uh, to, to be gently corrected by the Holy Spirit in that way. So just as we're getting started this morning, let me ask you that question. How often do you think about the return of Christ? How often do you think about the fact that Jesus is returning and it could be at any moment? It needs to change the way we think, 
the way we shop, the way we parent, the way we work our jobs, the way we engage with our neighbors, to know that Jesus will return very soon and that it needs to shepherd us in a certain, <coughs> excuse me, shepherd us in a certain direction, direction, and we need to be motivated and inspired by it. So if you find yourself going, man, I just don't think about that hardly at all. Let this text help you. Let it pull you back in the right direction to be motivated in the way that Peter is describing. And speaking of what Peter is describing, he uses the return of Christ to lay out some very specific commands. And he says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now, this phraseology that he used here uh, means having a sound mind. It means to be thinking about and evaluating situations maturely and correctly. Another translation has this as be serious and watchful. And the serious there means to not be swept away, to be dominated by one's emotions or passions. Uh, I like what one writer uh, said about this portion of the passage. He said, the doctrine of the imminent return of Christ should not turn the Christian into a zealous fanatic who does nothing but wait for it to occur. Instead, it should lead the believer into a watchful pursuit of holiness. Moreover, it creates a pilgrim mentality. Don't you like that? A pilgrim mentality. Someone who understands that we are ultimately citizens of heaven, but we are sojourning here in our time on earth, and we want to make the most of it in the way that we can. And part of the way we can make the most of it, Peter points out here, that, that we need to recognize the imminent return of Christ. We need to be sober-minded about that for the sake of what? Our prayers. And there's a few different schools of thought of exactly what Peter is getting at here. Uh, some people look at this and say, uh, so that the prayers wouldn't be hindered by sin. We certainly see that in the Psalms. We see that exhortation in the book of James. Uh, that could be right. It could also be that our minds are very focused so that we are uh, praying for the right things and we're not driven about by our emotions. That could be right as well. The scripture teaches both of those things. And what is very clear, though, is the return of Christ serves as our North Star. It leads to a certain kind of mindset, and it changes and informs and helps the way we pray. So to put some practical feet on this, let me ask you a question. Does the return of Christ inform your prayers? Does it shape the things that you pray for, the way that you pray for those things? And if it doesn't, what changes might you need to make even today? And what would be a good next step in that direction? Let me give you just an example here. Some of us, you know what this is like for your brain and your mind to run all the time. Even when you try to lay down and go to sleep, it's like, I'm still thinking about something. That is common for many of us. And one thing that I've learned to do over the years, there's been seasons of greater success <laughs> and failure in both of these, but to try to fill my mind with as much good mental chewing gum to chew on because it does inform and shape my prayer. So for example, if I'm looking at the news, I'm not just looking at the news, I'm looking at that situation, whatever it is, and, and I'm praying for that, whether it comes to, to, to the, the unfoldings that we've had here in America in recent weeks, uh, regarding the George Floyd trial, so on and so forth. I'm not just taking in information. I'm praying for that information. I'm praying for those situations. In addition to that, 
thinking about all the stuff with COVID and the stuff around the world and cases are now at the highest level globally. I'm not just learning about that. I'm praying for that. And then when you think about the granular situations of our lives, as we go through life, as we work through the situations of the day, we're not simply learning and taking in content, but we're praying for those things. We want to be sober-minded because Jesus is returning, and we want that to be rolled up in the right direction for the sake of our prayers. So practically, for you, what does that look like? What changes might need to be made? Do you need to stop taking in certain types of material? Do you need to change the approach to certain types of material? It's going to look different for all of us. But what is clear is that Jesus is returning. It needs to change our mindset, and it needs to change our prayers. And we want to be moving in the right Godward direction as it does. Now, let's turn our attention to verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So, two principles right there we're going to bring into one, and it is this, that Christians should seek to love one another above all else and joyfully show hospitality. Christians should seek to love one another above all else and joyfully show hospitality. Let's break it down. Above all. So this is the, hey, if you can't remember anything else, remember this. This is the biggest E on the I chart. Uh, you remember the, the prominence and the premium that Jesus placed on loving God and loving one another. Peter is bearing that out as well. And he's saying, love one another earnestly. And uh, that word there, earnestly, is, is fascinating. It means to be stretched, to be strained. And the word picture here is that of a runner that is moving at maximum output with taut muscles straining and stretching toward the limit. You, you've seen those races. Maybe it's at the, the end of the, the 100, 100 yard, uh, 100 meter dash, uh, it, you know, where the, all the runners are close together and they're all straining and you can see all the, 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 the all of their muscles. They just look like they're going to explode. Like that's the way that we should love one another. And you think about that. You think about what a helpful way that communicates the gospel to one another. It reminds us, hey, listen, when we love one another the right way, we are reflecting that God loves us the right way. And when the unbelieving world looks in and sees that kind of love within the church, it, what a picture of the gospel. That's how we want to be. And I also love what Peter says here, keep one of, uh, loving one another earnestly. And then he says, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, what is happening here is I think he is quoting from Proverbs 10, 12, that says almost exactly this. And it's important to understand what he's not saying. He's not saying, hey, listen, just when you see your brother sin, just, just ignore it, just pretend, just, you know, just enable them, whatever. That, that's not what he's talking about. But what he is talking about here is that when Christians are loving each other the right way, they are not broadcasting, they are not reveling in, they are not stirring up one another's sins. In fact, quite the opposite. And the word picture that I found here that I thought was so great is that of a blanket on a fire. Now, think of it like this, just for a moment. Let's say that when someone is sinning, they have caught fire. 
Now, obviously, we know that fire damages our skin. It can kill us. All those things. You know what you were taught growing up in school? Stop, drop, and roll and all that. Well, one of the things they've learned is that if you can starve that fire of oxygen, that's part of the stop, drop, and roll, if you can cover it up with a blanket, well, it's going to smother that fire and it's going to go out and it's going to do a lot less damage. And what Peter is saying here is that's the way love works when it comes to sin. That when we see a brother that is stumbled, that is fallen, that comes to community group and confesses his or her sin in that environment, that we don't look at them with judgment and despise them and say, well, I would never struggle in that way. No, that we come around them and we put the blanket of God's love atop of that fire that they have just confessed, and it does a lot less damage. Isn't that the kind of church you want to be a part of? One with a gospel culture that doesn't ignore sin. We don't enable sin. We don't encourage sin. But we want to not broadcast it either. We want to care for one another. We want to put out sin's fire so that it does as little damage as possible. Isn't that the kind of church that you want to be a part of? Boy, it is for me. That's the kind of gospel culture that we have here, that we want to have here, and by God's grace, we will have here. We want to be a part of that kind of sin-covering love that Peter is exhorting his original audience to. And think about how important this would have been in that first century as well. These people are made out of the same stuff that we are. They were in a horrible situation, struggling in a variety of ways, Doubtlessly, they were falling down on the spiritual job and a lot of different uh, uh, ways of life. And he's saying, listen, love one another above all else. Love each other earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. Let's follow in their footsteps for the glory of God. Now, verse 9, show hospitality to one another <clears throat> without grumbling. Now, hospitality between Christians has always been very important. You see this uh, as a requirement for pastors and elders. Uh, you, widows are exhorted to do this. You see that in 1 Timothy. You see it in Titus. Uh, and then it's commanded for all Christians in, in Matthew and Romans right here. It's, it's, it's ubiquitous throughout the New Testament. And it would have carried a special weight back then because there weren't hotels and motels dotting the landscape like they are here. And so if a, a traveler, a traveling Christian, came to a new city, uh, they needed to find some Christians or they were going to have to sleep outside. And nobody wants to do that if you're in a dangerous area. You know, It's not glamping, it was survival. And so he is exhorting these Christians, listen, if a visiting preacher comes to your area, if another Christian comes to your area, take care of them. Uh, and, and listen, I know it may be challenging, it may be difficult, it may be an inconvenience, that's why he says, without grumbling, but this is really, really important. It's a practical way that we can show the kind of love that he just talked about in verse 8, and it's a very practical way that we can help advance the kingdom of God here in verse 9. And I think most, most Christians know this. I mean, we know we need to be hospitable to one another, uh, and let me just say at the front outset here, COVID has made this increasingly challenging, right? Uh, we've been told by everybody, don't have people over, and you know, there's lots of different risk levels and all that. I, I get all that, trust me. If anybody gets it, we do. 
Um, but what can we do, even in this environment, to be hospitable? Who could you have into your backyard, socially distanced, what, whatever, to, that you could love on, that you could share with, that you could spend some good gospel time with? What neighbors could you get to know over the back fence? Who could you have over for ice cream? Uh, who could you have over for s'mores, sitting around a campfire? We need to always be thinking about those kinds of things because this is a command that we, we need to follow. And it has significant evangelistic implications. Uh, one study I read not too long ago says it now takes someone, I think it's like nine times to hear the gospel before they actually become a Christian. And so many people are so skeptical for so many reasons that seeing the gospel on display in the life of an individual or family, that, that's a big part of sharing the gospel now. And I would argue that hospitality has probably, I wouldn't say it's never been more important, but it's really important in our day and age, particularly as we come out of this uh, COVID season. And again, I think most people know that, but here's what trips people up the most often in not being as hospitable as they could. They set the bar too high. And what I mean by that is we have these expectations that, oh, that the house has to be perfect, or the meal has to be perfect, or the apartment has to be exactly right, or everybody, there's just all these things that the guests didn't put that upon us. The Bible didn't put that upon us. We put that upon ourselves. And I think we need to set the bar much lower. And the thing with hospitality is this is kind of a Nike thing. We just need to do it. Just do it. And so figure out, you know, especially, again, the season is different. But generally speaking, what would work in this way? Who's a person in your community group that maybe you don't know very well, uh, but you'd like to? Who's somebody new to the church that you saw them come in and you're like, hey, I don't really even know who that is. Well, get to know them. Have them over. And, and also set the bar lower like this. Pulling off a big meal, not everybody can do that. Not everybody can cook. Not everybody should cook. But you can do ice cream and you can get some bluebell or some, you know, Ben and Jerry's or whatever your thing is. And you can pull that out and, hey, 90 minutes, maybe 60 minutes. You can show hospitality for the glory of God. I think that would make Peter happy. I know that would make Jesus happy. And that's going to help move the mission forward. So we're motivated by the return of Christ. It changes our mindset. It changes our prayers. It changes our behavior and that we love one another earnestly. And it manifests itself in showing hospitality to one another. One more point from the last couple of verses. Look at verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. <coughs> whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the third and final point. Christians have all been given at least one spiritual gift, and we need to use those gifts for the glory of God. Christians have all been given at least one spiritual gift, and we need to use those gifts for the glory of God. So let's break it down. First thing to call your attention to there, each has received a gift. 
And that verb is important because it shows that this is not something that you can go over to Target and just pick up off of somebody's baby registry. No, this is a divine gift. It is a grace gift. And it has a clear purpose. Use it to serve one another. So this is not about you. This is not about trying to get famous. This is not about trying to look awesome. This is about serving God and serving other people. And, and that's what he gets at there with the very next phrase. As good stewards of God's very grace. Now, we don't traffic very much in that word steward, except maybe when we talk about money, which is absolutely true. We do need to be good stewards. But what he's talking about here is being a good manager. <clears throat> a steward is someone who effectively manages the goods of another. And what he's saying here is God has given these gifts for the purpose of serving his church and beyond. And we need to operate as if that were true. We need to care for them. We need to grow them. We need to <clears throat> use them effectively for <clears throat> our good in God's glory around the world. And he uses <clears throat> two separate uh, categories to describe these gifts. There are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. And the speaking gifts that he's describing here, this would be things like what I'm doing. This would be preaching. This would be teaching. This would be <clears throat> uh, leading Bible study. This would be teaching children, so on and so forth, that we need to say what God once said in the way God wants it said with the strength that God provides. That's what he means there by as one who speaks the oracles of God. So we need to say what God once said the way God wants it said with the strength that God provides. So if you were somebody with a speaking gift, let me ask you that question. Is that your goal when you speak? Are you trying to say what God once said, the way once it said, with the strength that he provides? And I don't, I don't want to hold myself up as a great example of that, but I will tell you that is my prayer every week. <clears throat> and I know I speak the same uh, on David's behalf here as well. We just want to say what God has said. We want to say it the way he said it, and we want to say it in the strength that he provides. Because when those things come together, man, that's where the church gets helped. That's where lives get changed because we're tapping into what only God can do in those moments. And so that would be my encouragement to you. Let's do that together, all those who have speaking gifts. Now, the serving gifts, what is that? Well, the language <coughs> that he uses there is actually the same language as somebody that's like a household servant. <coughs> and what he's getting at there is you're serving in the household of God, right? And so you want to serve as someone who wants to be faithful, who wants to be a good, uh, effective helper around the household of God, and that could take a variety of shapes. Uh, there can be a variety of ways that this can manifest itself. It could be doing setup. It could be uh, helping out, um, you know, with all kinds of things around around the church, so to speak. And then also using those gifts beyond the church. So the question I would kind of ask here would be, do you know what your gifts are? And if not, the church can help with that. And if you do, are you seeking to maximize their effectiveness for the glory of God? Now, I don't know if you caught that there, but Peter throws this little bit of addiction on the end there. He says, in order that everything in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ, so use these gifts toward God's glory 
And then just to cap it off, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So <clears throat> all of the gift usage, all of life is to be about the glory of God. So maybe if you do know what your gifts are, but you don't really know how to use them or you, you wonder, could I be doing more with this? Hey, listen, this kind of church, we want to help whatever we can do. We want to shepherd you in that direction uh, as best we can. Because when we are using our gifts in the way that God wants us to use them, I'm telling you, we're going to see some amazing things. So let's bring it all together. Where does this all come together? Friends, it comes together with Jesus. Because whose church is it that we're serving? It's Jesus' church. Whose strength do we need to serve his church? We need Jesus' strength through the power of the Holy Spirit. Who, who has given these gifts to us for the glory of God? It's Jesus. And friends, Jesus will help us every step of the way. He doesn't look at us at this passage and go, man, these people, goodness, I wish they'd get it together. He looks at this and he looks at this passage and he said, these are my precious children. I love each and every one of them. I have given each and every one of them gifts to use for my glory, for the good of the world, for the building up of their church. And he is with us and for us as we seek to use these gifts as we seek to love one another, as we seek to show hospitality with one another, as we seek to pray more effectively, have the right mindset, all in light of his imminent return. Where do you most need this Jesus' help today? For some, as you're hearing this, you need him to save you. You don't know him yet. You might think you do, but the reality is you're still trying to work your way to heaven. Friend, can you abandon that self-salvation project today and come to the real Jesus and let him save you? Will you admit that you're a sinner? Will you believe in the perfect life, the substitute's death, and the glorious resurrection of Jesus? And then will you commit your life to him? Friend, if that stirs something in your heart, even unexpected today, let me ask you to put your faith in Christ and reach out to us. We want to help you on your spiritual journey. Maybe if you've already made that turn, where do you most need the help of Jesus today? Is it in what we've talked about in the passage or, or maybe something else that the Holy Spirit has stirred up that is adjacent to what we've talked about today? Whatever it is, let's go before the Lord now and let's pray and ask for what only God can do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for your inspiration of your servant, Peter. Lord, we thank you for the time that we've had together in your word. And I pray that as you bring these areas where we need some help to light, that we would lean in where you lean in, and that you would shape us and change us and help us, and that we would continue to see what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.